Welcome to the Center Point Pentecostal Church podcast. We hope that this podcast finds you well and that you are ready for a life-changing message from one of our outstanding and anointed ministers. If you like this podcast, please be sure to give us a follow and a five-star review on your favorite podcasting app. Now let's get to today's message. Everybody said praise the Lord. Amen. Why don't we give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Hallelujah. He is worthy this morning. Hallelujah. The Bible says I looked and I, I wondered who was worthy until I saw the Lamb. Amen. Worthy is the Lamb. Hallelujah. I'm thankful today that I serve a God that is worthy of my praise. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for those kind words. Amen. I love this church very much. Amen. I love, I love our pastor. I believe we have the greatest pastor in the world. Amen. Amen. It's okay. In fact, I know that we have the greatest pastor in the world because God has put him in this church. Amen. He's not, just, he's not just our pastor, but he is the man that God put here. If you have your Bibles, I would like to turn your attention to the book of Ephesians chapter number 4. Very, very, very familiar reading. And the Lord, the Lord just laid this subject upon my heart some months back. And I've just kind of been just cultivating it and really didn't know when the Lord would allow me to preach it but it was just a week or so ago as I came to pastor and we were talking and I just felt like it was time amen to preach what the Lord had given me in the book of Ephesians chapter number four and verse 11 if you've got it amen you can follow along with us on the board if you do not Thank you to all of our guests that are here this morning. Why don't we give our guests a big center point welcome. <clears throat> Amen. You are a good-looking group of people this morning. Paul, writing to the book of Ephesus, he begins to pen these words in Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Everybody just point to yourself and say, that's me. For the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, say, that's me. And this is really where he wants to draw all of this together. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What are you trying to say, Paul? Until we all come into the unity of the faith. I wonder what would happen at center point if we all were in one mind and one accord. Just like they were on the day of Pentecost. What would happen until we all come into the unity of the faith 
and to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. If you are wondering today and you are unsure why you are in a Pentecostal church today, why you are in the ministry of this pastor, it is so that you can become perfect. It's so that you can be found as a measure of a man. We're not just coming to church, amen, to take up space on a pew or to have a membership on a church roster. Amen. We're all trying to make it to heaven. Hallelujah. Woo, I feel the Holy Ghost here this morning. Why don't we just lay our Bibles down and lift up our voices and our hands toward heaven this morning. Father, we love you. There's none like you. Not in all the earth. God, we're asking today that you would visit us in this place. Visit us in this moment today, God. Visit us with a word, God, a fresh anointing, God, that we can leave today, God, and forever be changed by the word of the Lord. Come on, why don't we just cry out to the Lord this morning. God, I need you today. I need a fresh anointing. I need a fresh touch. Hallelujah. We give you the praise and we give you the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Come on, let's clap our hands unto the Lord. Amen. One more time. Amen. You may be seated. I will give you my title in just a moment. Friend, let me tell you today that we are living in an hour where there is, the Bible says in the last days, that there would be a famine. A famine not just of meat and drink, but a famine of the preached word of God. You don't have to look far until you find that preachers are not preaching the unadulterated truth. Amen. The media, the news outlets, the press tries to tell us what we can and cannot preach. And what used to be sin is no longer sin. Friend, let me tell you, amen, if it took it for grandma if it took it for grandpa, amen, if brother Odell had to have it to be saved, amen, then brother Francois got to have it to be saved. If Bishop Belgard preached it 45 years ago, amen, it still needs to be preached today. Thank you for preaching the word of the Lord. I come to this pulpit this morning, amen, with a burden on my heart because there is a lack of the preached word of God. Televised evangelists preach today a prosperity message. Amen. Let me tell you, God's not interested in how much money you've got in your bank account. He's not interested in how much you know. He wants to see you saved. And friend, let me tell you something. If I'm going to be saved, it's going to be because I have a preacher. A preacher. I read this yesterday evening whenever I was preparing this lesson this morning. And it is simply entitled, The Perfect Pastor. 
The perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin, but he never names it. He never hurts anyone's feelings. The perfect pastor works 12 hours a day from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. every day. And he cleans the church in his spare time and he takes care of all the maintenance. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week. He wears nice clothes, drives a nice car, but not too nice. Then he donates the remaining $30 back into the church. The perfect pastor is 39 years old with 40 years of experience. Above all, he is handsome. He's thin. He's tall. He's short. And he's overweight. His hair is parted down the middle. And on one side it's straight. And on the other side it's wavy. And he's bald in the back. His kids are perfect. His wife is an angel. I'm talking about the, the perfect pastor. He's talented. He's perfect. He's gifted. He's scholarly. He's practical. He's popular. He's compassionate. He's understanding. He's patient. He's level-headed. He's dependable. He's organized, caring, cheerful, and above all, he's humble. I'm talking about the perfect pastor. That's what we want, right? The perfect pastor has a burning desire to inspire teens, but yet he spends most of his time with the seniors in the church. He smiles with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to the kingdom. He makes 15 house calls a day and he's always available to hear your problems. The perfect pastor. Let me tell you something. You can search the world and you're never going to find the perfect pastor. Amen. Our pastor is human just like you and I. He makes mistakes just like you and I. But guess what? The only difference is as God has made him the watchman of this church. Oh, I knew it wasn't going to be a popular message, but let me tell you something. You can be thankful for your doctor or your lawyer or your banker, but I'm thankful to have a pastor who watches for my soul. In the book of 1 Samuel, the Bible talks about Saul's second year as kingship. Saul was the very first king in Israel. Up until Saul, God's people were led by prophets. But the people were disgruntled, dissatisfied, because the preacher kept telling them what it took to be saved and how to live right and how to act right. And the people thought, we want to be like all of the rest of the nations. Amen. The neighboring countries have kings, so we want us a king. And so God honored the people's cry and gave them their wishes. You can read in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul, whenever he has gone out to look for his father's lost cattle 
This is when he runs into uh, Samuel and he is anointed to be king. He was never God's king. He was the people's king. Saul looked the part. There's big differences in Saul's life versus David's life. You see, Saul was head and shoulders above every man in Israel. He looked the part. He was handsome. He was strong. He was tall. He was dark. And he was a fighter. But David was just a little shepherd boy. Amen. Saul might have looked the part. But friend, let me tell you, David acted the part. Saul went through the motions, but David had a walk with God. Saul was after the people's heart, and David was after the heart of God. Friend, let me tell you something. If you're going to be successful in your walk with God, you've got to get your eyes off the people and put your eyes on the king. Saul makes a few horrible, horrible mistakes. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13, his second year as king. He begins to exalt himself and lift up himself. It is here that Saul has 3,000 chosen men. They find themselves at war with the Philistines. His son Jonathan has 1,000 trained soldiers with him at Gibeah. And 2,000 were waiting for Saul at Michmash in Mount Bethel. The rest of the people Saul had sent to go home, every man into his own tent. Just a little bit about Israel. Israel was not a military fighting group as the Philistines. God had delivered them out of Egypt. They were farmers, they were slaves, they were herdsmen. Only a few of these men were well-trained soldiers and they were the king's men. For the most part, militarily, Israel were no fighters. At some point in the battle, Jonathan, Saul's son, had slew a garrison of the Philistines. And Saul takes it upon himself to sound the trumpet and tell all the people that he had done this great victory. It was at this time that the Philistines grew angry. This only made the fight worse. They brought 6,000 horsemen and 30,000 chariots to fight Israel. Looks like Saul had made a mistake. The Bible says that their foot soldiers were as the sands of the seashore, innumerable. Israel was in a strait. They were afraid. They were scared. The Bible says that they ran. They hid in caves, in thickets, behind rocks, dens, and in pits. And the people that stayed with Saul trembled with fear. It was at this time that Saul makes his most crucial mistake. He was told and instructed by the man of God to wait seven days and Samuel would offer burnt offerings and sacrifices unto God. But Saul feared the people and he took it upon himself to offer up 
the sacrifice to God. When Samuel returns and sees this that Saul has done, he tells Saul to his face, Saul, God has rejected you. Now I've read this story a a bunch of times and I've never seen it on this wise. It is at this moment in his two-year tenure that Samuel tells Saul that he's going to give his kingdom to David. It is in this verse that Samuel tells Saul that David was a man after God's own heart. You see, for years I thought David was a man after God's own heart as he was king and learned. But friend, let me tell you something. Before you can ever be a king, you've got to be a servant. And to be a servant, you've got to have a heart after God. It is in verse 17 that the Philistine spoilers comes and plunders Israel. Now I would like to draw your attention to 1 Samuel 13 and verse 19. If they would put that scripture up on the board please. Verse 19 says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines, the enemy said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords and spears. So all the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, his cutler, his axe, and his mattock. Yet they only had a file for the mattocks and for the cutlers and for the forks and for the axes to sharpen the goads. And so it came to pass in the day of battle, listen, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul. What a tragedy for there to be no smith found in Israel. In those days you might think, what is so important about a smith. Who needs a blacksmith? In those days a blacksmith worked with metal. He would take unusable metal and he would heat it up in the forge, in the fire, and the furnace until it would glow with heat. Then he would take his hammer and he would beat it just a farm instrument into a weapon, into a sword. That's why the enemy does not want us to have a preacher. A preacher is like a blacksmith. He takes form instruments and turns them into weapons. Some of you came to this church. You are nothing but a drunkard. You are nothing but an alcoholic. You are nothing but a thief and a robber until you got on the anvil and got in the fire and the furnace and the preacher, amen, begin to work and make you into an instrument that God can use. Friend, let me tell you something. I stand here today, amen, this morning, not because of any special gifts, not because any special talents that I have. It's because I had an old gray-headed daddy that was my smith. He was my pastor. He was my preacher. Let me tell you, he beat it into me. 
he would grab me by the shirt collar and say, listen to me, Bertman. You've got to be saved. You've got to straighten up. You can't have an attitude. My dad's been dead for seven years. Friend, let me tell you something. Don't wait until your pastor is gone before you show him gratitude and thanks. Amen. You ought to wake up every day and thank God that you've got a watchman. Amen. He's just not here to preach a pretty sermon. He's not here just to tell you a story. He's not here just to tickle your ears. Friend, let me tell you something. Your soul is in the balance and it's up to a smith. It's up to a smith to get your life right. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. You see, the Philistines weren't worried that Israel was going to come fight with a plow or with a hoe or with a garden rake. You see, because he disabled them because they took the smith out lest they could devise weapons. Friend, let me tell you something. That's why the enemy is attacking the ministry today. The, the enemy would like nothing more than to silence. Why do you think the pastor's home is under attack? Why do you think he comes and he preaches, amen, without sleep and with burden? There's many nights that he stays up praying, amen, for our children, for our families. You know why? It's because, amen, the enemy would like to silence the smith. The enemy knows that if there's no smith, there's no danger of you being successful in battle. Friend, let me tell you something. If you're ever going to be anything in your walk with God, it's going to be because you're in the hands of a man of God. That's why the Bible says he chose the fivefold ministry. The Bible said in 1 Corinthians that he chose by the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. Friend, let me tell you something. You can't be saved without a pastor. You can't be saved without a preacher. You might say, oh, well, I just sit at home and I, I send my money, amen, to the, to the big church on the television. Let me tell you something. Something. Who are you going to call when your family's in, in need? Who are you going to call when your wife or your children are sick? Amen. Go ahead and call them. They're not going to get on their jet and fly to your side. Amen. You better be thankful that you've got a pastor that'll wake up in the middle of the night and fall down on his face and begin to plead heaven for your case. If there's ever been a day, amen, we live in a day today where we need a preacher. We need a smith. We don't need a sermonizer. Amen. We need a pastor. We don't need somebody that'll tell us what we want to hear. We need somebody that'll tell us what we've got to do to be saved. You can read the Bible. I don't have time to show you, but every successful man in the Bible had a smith in their life. Joshua was who he was because Moses crafted him in the wilderness, in the forge, in the fire. We need a smith to put us on the anvil and transform us from a farm tool into an instrument of righteousness. Elijah had Elijah. He got the double portion. Nineveh had Jonah. 
Noah was a preacher before the flood. After Nehemiah built the wall, the Bible said in Nehemiah 6 and 7 that he sent prophets to preach saying there is a king in Judah. Friend, let me tell you something. If you're going to be familiar with the king, if you look to ever see the king of Israel, it's going to be because a preacher preached to you. David had Nathan the prophet and when David had sinned his grotesque sin it was Nathan the prophet that shook his bony finger and pointed it on David's nose and said it is you king that have sinned. Friend let me tell you something even the king needs a preacher. I tell you what Saul's problem was Saul's problem was he had too much ego. He had too much of the mentality, amen, that I'm a self-made man. Let me tell you something. You can't have a ministry without your pastor. You can't have, amen, a walk with God without your pastor. You can't be anointed without your pastor. Well, I knew it was, I wasn't going to get, amen, too many amens out of that. Let me just remind you of something. When Moses got ready, amen, to pass on his ministry, the Bible says that he met with Jethro and they met at the base of the mountain and they brought 70 men from Israel. And the Bible says that God put the spirit of Moses on these 70 men. Not, they didn't have their own ministry. They didn't have their own spirit. They had the spirit of the pastor. Friend, let me tell you something. If my ministry in this church is going to be successful, it's not my ministry. It's pastor's ministry. If we're going to have an anointing, amen, it's not going to be anything of ourselves. It's if God places, amen, the spirit of the preacher, the spirit of the smith on us. Friend, let me tell you, I want to be saved. I want to make heaven my home. You know, the problem with men a lot of times is we're too, we're too prideful. I'm amazed at how women can have more of a walk with God sometimes than men. It's in the Bible. If you read your Bible in the book of 2 Kings chapter 4, the Bible speaks of a woman from Shunem. The Bible says that when Elijah would come by, she would prepare for him a meal. And she said, everybody say she said, not her husband, but she said, she perceived this is a man of God. Friend, let me tell you something. I refuse to let my wife have more anointing than me. I refuse to let my wife out-worship me in church. I refuse to let my wife read her Bible more than I do. I refuse to let my wife out-worship me, out-give me. So watch what she does. The Bible says that she perceived that he was a man of God. And she goes to her husband and she says, let's build him a room. Now, I can just imagine his response. That, Look, I mean, if... If we need a room, amen, I was thinking about maybe a man cave. 
And you want to build a preacher room. Amen. He's got plenty of money. He's a traveling evangelist. When he comes through here, amen, he doesn't need a room. But let me tell you something. She made him a room. And if you read the story, you think all the while that the story is about Elisha. But friend, let me tell you something. If you keep reading, you're going to find out what happens. Because the Bible says that Elijah says to Gehazi, isn't this woman, doesn't she not have a child? About this same time, Amen. In a few months, she's going to have a son. And the Bible says that God gave her something that she didn't have all because she made room for the man of God. I wonder this morning, what is it that you're desiring? What in your life are you missing? I wonder what would happen. Amen. Every day you come to the house of God, you're building a room. Every time you give in the offering, you're building a room. That's why we don't need to come to the house of God and just sit on the pew. Amen. We need to make room for the preacher. The Bible says that in a few, few months the, the sun grew tired and weak and overheated. And the Bible says that the father brought the son to his mother and laid him across his mother's lap. Now notice what she does. She doesn't take the child and lay him in his bed. She doesn't take the child and lay him in her bed. No, no. She takes the child into the room that she built for the man of God. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. And she laid her baby on the man of God's bed that she built. Friend, let me tell you something. You might not ever need the room. Your husband might not ever need the room, but you've got some kids that's going to need the preacher to save them and going to pull them out when they're dead in sin and when they're dead in their trespasses. Be careful how you value your smith. Bible says that she called for the man of God. He didn't come, so she went. The Bible says the prophet sent his servant with a stick and a staff, and he came, and that didn't work. So when all else fails, the prophet, the man of God, the smith, he comes himself, and guess what he does? The Bible says that he lays upon the child, and he stretches himself out over this child. He puts eyeball to eyeball, hand to hand, mouth to mouth, nose to nose. Amen. And he breathes back into him, and he sneezes upon him, and he stretches himself, and the child began to have life. What are you trying to say? There are times that you don't even realize when pastor is stretching himself over your situation, over your dead problems, over your marriage, over your finances. You don't even know. Amen. It's because the room that you've built for the man of God. That's why I refuse That's why I refuse just to come to the house of God and just sit on a pew. I'm building a room. I might not ever need it, but I've got two boys that might need it one day. And it's better, amen, to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. The provisions that I'm laying up, amen, is for my children. Whew. 
the smith. The smith in ancient times was responsible for making artillery and warfare. Some of the earliest Roman smiths could take ordinary ore and steel and turn it into ornate swords and beautiful weaponry. You see, the average foot soldier, the average foot soldier carried what was considered to be a basic sword. It was short, it was stubby, it was common, it was only somewhat sharp, and it was made to fit the average hand. It only took a couple of days for the smith to forge this sword. Just a little bit of heat because you see it's not very important because it's just a foot soldier. But the further you move up in the infantry, the further you move up the ladder in the ranks, the horseman, he had a long sword. This sword took weeks to build. It had to be especially sharp because he was on horseback and it had to have a long reach and it had to be short, sharp. It had to be precise. You see, there's different levels of being in, uh, in God's Work. You can just have a short stubby ministry. You can have just a short stubby walk with God. It's up to you. Then when you move to the king, captains, generals, the higher the rank, the more detailed the sword, the more time of forging and tempering. When it comes to the king's sword, the king's sword sometimes took upwards of a year for the blacksmith to forge and heat and beat all the impurities and the imperfections out of it. It would have handcrafted detail and etching on it so that from afar any common soldier could look at this weapon and know that it was the king's sword. I ask you today, are you satisfied we're just sitting on a church pew having a stubby ministry, a stubby walk with God. Are you willing to stay on the anvil? Are you willing to stay in the fiery furnace and let the preacher come and beat the carnality? Wasn't it Jeremiah that said, my word is like a hammer and a fire. You know what happens when the preacher begins to preach it so hot and I feel carnality rise up in me and my flesh has to be beat down with the word of God. Friend, let me tell I want to stay on the forge. I want to stay on the anvil. If you stay on it long enough, are you satisfied with just having a stubby ministry, a stubby walk with God? Are you willing to stay in the forging process and to where the pastor can shape you and mold you into an instrument that is fit for the king's hand. The problem with Saul, if you read 1 Samuel 13, Samuel told him, Saul, if you'd only do right, God would establish your kingdom forever. Saul didn't learn his lesson just in the next couple chapters. In 15, the Bible says, 
Samuel told him to go kill the Amalekites. And he spares Agag, the sheep, the oxen. And when Samuel comes, he said, what is this I hear? The Bible said that on his way out to meet Saul, you can read it in the NIV. The NIV says that when Saul went out to meet Samuel, he paused and he made himself a monument. How nice, Saul, to make a monument of yourself. Friend, I wonder today, when we leave this walk of God, what are we going to leave our children? Is it just going to be a monument of our self-centered, self-egotistical self? Or is it going to be something like a legacy that we can leave? Amen, amen, something that is a heritage that our children will remember us by. If someone would come to the music, we have to be tempered. First Corinthians chapter, chapter 9 says, Every man that striveth for the magistry has to be tempered in all things. That they do this to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. In the forging process, there is something that's called tempered. When metal and steel has to reach certain temperatures, then it's quenched by, by the water, and it makes it tempered. Friend, let me tell you something. We're baptized in the Spirit, not so we can just have tempers of unforgiveness. Your attitude can't rule you. We have to be tempered. We have to be balanced. Peter, Jesus told you, Peter, he said, Satan has desired to tempt you. He's desired to have you, to sift you as wheat. He said, but I'm not praying that you come out of the fiery furnace. I'm not praying, amen, that you don't stay on the anvil. I'm just praying that your faith will endure the test because one day you're going to have the keys one day you're going to preach the gospel message and when you do that you're going to be able to save your brothers the smith then would take the sword out and he would pass an edge on it he would take that word of God Hebrews 4.12 says for the word of God is quick powerful pastor take that sword so that when I preach my messages I want my words to be sharp in the enemy I don't want the enemy to have an edge over me I want to have an edge over my enemy I am where I am today simply because I've only had really two pastors in my life my dad until we came to center point and I sat under Bishop Belgard and Pastor Beard and friend let me tell you something growing up with your dad as your pastor I never understood I thought he was mean I thought he was hateful but he was forging me friend let me tell you something the ministry that I have is nothing I only stand here today Sometimes I'll go to his grave and I'll sit there and I want just to tell him, you know, I didn't get a chance to tell you how thankful I was. I can understand Saul, Sister Nita, in Saul's closing chapters of his life, Samuel is dead and gone. And Pastor, what he does, he goes to the witch disguised by night in the final chapters of his life. And he knocks at the door at the witch of Endor. 
I can almost understand even though it's not right, Saul. What are you doing? He said one more time, I want to talk to the man of God. I want to talk to the smith and say just one more time. I want to hear your voice. Samuel, I don't have nobody else. Just one more time. Friend, let me tell you something. Don't wait until it's too late to be thankful for the man of God. You're here this morning. You have the best opportunity in the world to be saved, to save your family. I, I feel like we have the greatest pastor. He's not perfect, but guess what? He is our pastor. We need, we need to love the smith. We need to stay in the fire and let him forge us into an instrument. Friend, let me tell you something. I want to be saved. I want my family saved. I don't want to be like Saul and get out of the fire. I want to stay on the forge, stay on the anvil. Preacher, preach to me. If you see me doing something wrong, Pastor Beard, pull me to the side. Don't let me go in, in sin. Don't let carnality rule in my life. When you see something pop up in my life, spirit of pride, amen, of unforgiveness. There's more unforgiveness that sits in a Pentecostal church. I'm just telling you how I feel. I tell you what I deal with. Unforgiveness, friend, let me tell you something. The only prisoner that unforgiveness shackles is the person who refuses to forgive. If we're going to make it, we've got to be balanced. We've got to be tempered. We've got to have the edge. We've got to have the temperament because we're fighting a warfare. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not, they're not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that it changes and impacts your life for days to come. If you would like to connect with us further, give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash Centerpoint Pentecostal Church or just search Centerpoint Pentecostal Church on Facebook. If you would like to join one of our services in person, the service times and address are in the podcast description. Thank you and God bless, and we hope to see you on the next episode.